Very sadly last week, I wasn't in the service and, and able to witness uh, the glory that apparently was Jez's um, T-shirt. Um, uh, those of you who are here, um, uh, anybody remember what, what T-shirt he was wearing? Ah, well done, Kung Fu Panda, Kung Fu Panda. Uh, yeah, maybe it was a good thing I wasn't here. But anyway, the, uh, the, the, it had a point. And uh, if you didn't get to listen to that sermon, um, you'll, I don't know whether you know, all our sermons go online, they're podcasted. Um, you can either go onto SoundCloud and search for All Souls Church, or you just go onto our website, and they're there on the front page. But I was listening to Jez's sermon during the week. And um, he was talking about this beginning to the book of Acts. And of course, um, as we're discovering, as we walk through the book of Acts, Acts isn't just a standalone book. It's Luke part two. Uh, the, the, the man Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, who talked about the works of Jesus, then goes on to talk, and to his terms, he says, I'm going on to talk about the works of Jesus in my second book, uh, the book of Acts. But this time, Jesus has given his commission to his disciples. He's given them their, their marching orders, if you like. He's risen and ascended and gone to be, back, to be back with his Father in heaven. And now we see the works of Jesus through his people, through his body, the church. And in particular, what we were looking at last time was Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, this explosion at the beginning of the life of the church as God pours out his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the called alongside one, the one who comes to empower his people to do the works and wonders of Jesus. And if you're wondering, if you weren't here last week, where Kung Fu Panda comes into it, although I'm tempted to say, go and listen to the sermon, I will let you know um, that Kung Fu Panda, if you've never seen the film, this won't make a lot of sense, but is a character in a, in a cartoon who simply thinks that he's capable of nothing that he has nothing to do, he has nothing ahead of him, that he has no particular role or place, and that it is laughable to imagine that he could be any sort of hero or make any sort of difference. And actually something happens to him that it changes his whole view of what he's for and what he's capable of. And up to a point, that's exactly what was happening in Acts 2. No Kung Fu involved, but plenty of change of vision and of direction. God's people empowered to make a difference. God's people empowered to uh, do the works and speak the words of Jesus. And actually, if you work your way through from Acts 2 through to where we've got to in Acts 6, what you discover is this breathless pursuit of the works and wonders of Jesus. You see those original apostles doing an incredible sort of avalanche of activity and success. Um, you see Peter and John, people that we'd have been very familiar with from the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' close friends, Peter and John, spearheading this work to preach and teach, to bring people to, to know the love of Jesus for themselves. They do incredible healings. There is incredible uh, examples of courage and bravery as they stand up in front of those who are persecuting and are willing to speak of Jesus. And there's just daily engagement in teaching the faith and in arguing the case for Jesus. And actually, by the time you get to the end of chapter 5, it, it's almost quite exhausting to read Acts. It's an astonishing book. Page after page of astonishing things said and astonishing things done. And Peter and John spearheading this wave of apostles, the original disciples of Jesus, empowered by his spirit. There is a problem with that, though. There's a problem that when you and I read chapters 1 to 5, we're not seeing ourselves. You're not Peter. You're not John. Neither am I. We're not part of that original apostolic group. We weren't with Jesus in the resurrection. We probably don't feel very apostle-like most days. Monday mornings maybe especially. There's not that sense of, I can do this. There's actually a sense of, well, if anybody can do it, it won't be me. 
And when we go into chapter 6, 7, and 8, which are the story of Stephen that we're going to come to, the problem is that Stephen, if we skip over the beginning of it, if we just skim our way through it, looks like just another one of the same. As if he's just another one of these astonishing heroes of faith that's nothing like us and little to do with us. Chapter 7, if we had time to read it, you would discover, is the longest speech in the whole of Acts. It's given the prominent position in all of the talk about Jesus. And it's this sort of bravura, tour de force explanation of the whole sweep of salvation history, all the way from Genesis all the way to Jesus, talking about God's people, the way that they keep turning their back on God, they keep rejecting all that he gives them, and they keep missing the point of why they've been called and what they're for. And Stephen lands it squarely at the feet of Jesus and says, Jesus has come to solve that problem. Jesus has come to be God's gift to the world. You need to turn your lives around and follow him. And what we find at the beginning of chapter 8 is this astonishing and heartbreaking moment where Stephen, having been willing with all that courage and all that passion to stand up and speak of Jesus, becomes the first recorded Christian martyr, stoned to death for his faith. And his death becomes the seed, one of the seeds, dropped into the ground that, when it grows, becomes this astonishing ministry of Paul. Because Saul, as he was then known, is seen holding the coats of the people who are stoning Stephen, one of those formative moments in the life of the man who would become the greatest leader, church planter, evangelist, theologian and writer over the 2,000 years of God's church. So here's the danger. The danger is that we skip our way through Acts 1 to 8 and we imagine that all this exciting activity, this expansion of the church, the thousands of people coming to faith, society turned upside down, is all down to a few key men who were the great heroes but the whole point of Acts 2, the whole point of Pentecost, was pretty much the, the mirror image of that, the opposite of that. The point of Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit, was actually that God wasn't simply just going to pick one person over here, and one person over here, and one person over here. The important people, the prophets, the priests, the kings, fill them with his Spirit and get them to do his work. Actually, the Holy Spirit was going to be poured on everyone, from the youngest to the oldest, from those who've known and followed Jesus all their lives to those who are just beginning that journey of faith. That's the gift. And actually, now we stop long enough to look at the life of Stephen properly, what we're going to find is he's a brilliant example of exactly that. Because Stephen isn't, it turns out, one of the great apostles. Stephen isn't, it turns out, one of those who initially, at least, was um, picked out to be one of the great upfront leaders. Here is somebody whose life of service and whose remarkable preaching and martyrdom comes out instead of a messy bit of administrative mess-up in the life of the early church. And he's given a job of waiting on tables and distributing food. An ordinary, important, but unseen job. Let me read for you um, Acts chapter 6, first seven verses. If you'd like it in front of you, you'll find it on page 1000. And 98. Let's listen to God's word together. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, 
it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of wisdom and uh, the spirit. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The proposal pleased the group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Verse 7 is an exciting verse. The word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and even a large number of priests became obedient to faith. We love the idea of more people getting to know the love of Jesus, of God's people growing, of their reach expanding. So what is it that leads to the continuation of that growth? What sort of church is it that we find at the beginning of chapter 6 that leads to that happening? What part does Stephen play? in all of that. I want to suggest suggest that where it starts is somewhere very ordinary, somewhere very non-controversial, but something that we are very want to simply put on one side and think of as almost unspiritual. It's there in verse 1. It's that simply this is a church that cares about people's needs, their physical needs, their social needs. Needs. In those days, it says, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. I love that verse. I love it for all sorts of reasons. I love it because it's real. It's down to earth. It's the sort of thing that actually you probably airbrush out of a history of a church or a community. I mean, if you're writing a history of all souls, you'd think, well, we don't need to talk about, you know, this little rumble over here and, and this little disagreement over here and this mess up over here. I love the fact that it's here in the pages of Scripture. It's real, it's honest, it's open. This, this was a problem, a mess up. I love it too because it is just entirely practical. It was just a problem. I'm not convinced at all that this was a problem of somehow racism or prejudice. Although the Hebraic Jews and the Grecian Jews came from different sort of uh, uh, racial backgrounds... If it had been a racial problem between them, then actually Peter and John's approach to them would have been uh, basically a sermon or a talk. They'd have got them, uh, sat down, they'd have talked to them, as actually Paul does in other places, and simply said, we're all one in Christ Jesus, how dare we treat one another differently? That's not what he talks about here. Actually, it's pretty clear that this is an administrative problem. This is a logistical issue. Some are getting the food, others aren't getting the food. Why? Well, they've messed it up. It seems actually that the problem is they haven't got enough people paying attention to this because that's the solution that's applied. So the 12 gathered all the disciples together and said, choose some more people to get involved. So here is fundamentally a pastoral, personal, specific, practical need. Some people aren't getting fed. Now, just to fill in one tiny little bit of background, in those days, if you were a widow, you were in a particularly perilous and vulnerable 
position. 2,000 years ago, in the days before the welfare state, in the days before any sort of uh, government or local um, support, actually, if you were widowed, you were entirely and absolutely dependent on the charity of others. You were dependent on your family, you were dependent on your friends, you were dependent on the largesse of whatever community you belonged to. And therefore, one of the absolute sort of litmus tests of God's people, all the way through the Old Testament, actually, and right up to the time of Jesus, was how do you care for the widows amongst you? Widows and orphans, actually, having spoken about orphans already this morning through the, the work of the Pink Foundation. Actually, those who do not have an immediate group of people that will care for them, every point in the Bible, it's actually there's the litmus test for what sort of people you are. How do you care for those in need? How do we care for those in need? Part of the dynamic that meant that this early church grew and was strong and began to see the love of Jesus um, spread abroad was actually, therefore, firstly, that they cared about people. They didn't think of it as unspiritual. They didn't think of it as a side issue. They simply said, to pick up something Becky said earlier, Jesus loves us. Jesus loves them. Jesus has poured mercy on us. Jesus wants us to show mercy to others. So how will we make sure, practically, that we care for their needs? And that's why we talk as a church about the fact that what, who we are as a church isn't just about what we do in this building on a Sunday. It's about what we do in welcoming people, for example, into Little Souls, a, a community of, uh, of young carers caring for children and finding a place where they can belong and, and be welcomed. It's why we talk about the food bank, about making sure that those who are at the end of their tether, who simply don't have enough to eat, have a place where they can go, where they are welcomed, where they are loved, where they're provided for. Not judged, not looked down on, but treated uh, eyeball to eyeball, heart to heart. It's why we talk about our English conversation classes for those maybe who's part of the Iverbridge estate communities, for whom English is a barrier to them actually feeling like they belong actually being part of their local community. It's why we say these things aren't simply a bolt-on extra that we do because we want to be good people. These are right at the heart of who we are as a church. This is right at the heart of our calling as followers of Jesus. The early church cared about people's needs and they were willing practically to meet them. And it takes practical action. You don't simply sort of think pious thoughts and pray pious prayers. It takes money. It takes time. It takes organisation, administration, volunteers, rotors, dare, dare I say it. It's almost a rude word in church circles. They didn't have enough people, therefore they couldn't do the work. They didn't go, I'm sorry, that's not spiritual love for us. They said, right, who's up? Who's going to do it? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. The early church didn't just care about people, they cared about the gifts that every person brought to the team. Every person had a job to do. And that's what's behind what we might otherwise misunderstand in verse 2, where it says that the 12, that's the early apostles, gathered all the disciples together, all the early Christians together, and said, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables, so choose some people to take it on. Here's what they weren't saying. They weren't saying, this is a bit beneath us, can we get some unimportant people to do the, you know, the dog's body work? They were simply saying, you can't all do everything. We can't. We can't all do everything. So the question was, if we're going to do that sort of upfront leadership bit that we've been called to, who's going to do this part of the ministry? 
Unless we miss, and, and, and lest we misunderstand it, what's really important here, the problem is it gets lost in the English translation, is that they use exactly the same language of the ministry of waiting on tables as they do for the ministry of the word. So at the end of verse 2, it says wait on tables. The language used is literally serving at table, at diakonos, which is the deacon word, the servant word. At the end of verse 4, where it talks about the ministry of the word, it literally says diakonos, logos, the serving of the word. So look, you get on and serve at tables, we'll get on and serve the word. It's the same language, because what they're saying is, you've got your job, we've got our job. What's your job? What are the things that God is calling you to? What are the gifts and skills, time, effort, money, resources, that you personally have got? You might think your gift is worth nothing, that everybody else has got the gifts. Actually, the whole of the book of Acts is about how God, by his spirit, through all of his people, in all sorts of shapes and sizes and ages and skills and approaches, actually through all of them, he does this remarkable work. And here's Stephen. Stephen chosen to do something that he was called to do. This job of waiting on tables, distributing food. But there's also one more thing, and that is that the church, then having said we care about people, we think everybody's got a gift to bring, or maybe many gifts and responsibilities to bring, they then didn't make a hierarchy. As if the Holy Spirit, when he came to empower people for, for the, the works of God, empowered the preachers or empowered the evangelists and the church planters and then wasn't terribly worried about the people who were just doing practical jobs. Well, you just get on and do it, don't you? I love the fact that when they look for people who are going to do this administrative, logistical, caring work, they used exactly the same criteria as they used for appointing people who were going to do full-on evangelism and teaching. Look, it says, verse 3, choose men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. It doesn't just say, choose people who are going to be good with food. Choose people who are going to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. The Holy Spirit's job is to empower all of God's people for works of service. Some of us, like me, get ordained to lead a church. That's a work of service. But it's not the only work of service. And it's not at the top of some tree of importance in God's eyes. It's one work of service. You may have a work of service right now of being the best parent you can be, empowered by God's Spirit to bring up your kids and to empower them and the lives they're going to lead. You might have the gift at the moment of being somebody who prays for others, who's a good friend, who gives the gift of hospitality. It may be that the Holy Spirit's main job in your life is empowering you to do the job where you are in the workplace you are, with all integrity, with all grace, and to the best of your ability. And in the midst of all of that, there may be all sorts of other things God calls you to do. You may, dare I say, end up on a rota somewhere, in church, helping with children's groups, or helping at the food bank. You might help lead something that you've never tiptoed into before. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do what he's calling us to do. And the lovely thing is that actually empowers us for different things at different points in our lives. But he never stops. There is never going to be a day in your life till the day you die when the Holy Spirit says, yeah, okay, we're done now. He's always going to be growing you and your faith. He's always going to be growing the gifts in you. He's always going to be using you to serve others and to serve the kingdom of God. And this practical, personal concern for people, this recognition that we can't all do everything and we need all of us to offer our gifts, 
This refusal to assume that the Holy Spirit only empowers some people, but wants to empower all people, that's what leads to verse 7. So, Luke says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. It's one of the reasons that we feel so happy and comfortable and in step alongside Becky and Bob. Because actually that is that vision that we hear time and again from Salt Ventures and from them. That sense of God's people called and empowered by the Holy Spirit to serve the real needs of real people and to speak of Jesus wherever they are. Not imagining that some people are more important than others. Not imagining that this is, you know, let's parachute in people from this country or from that country. It's simply God's people together recognizing their gifts, serving those in need and bringing the good news of Jesus to all who will hear. So what about us? If we're serious about wanting the good news of Jesus to be not just good news for us who are gathered in church on a Sunday, but good news for all the people that we know, our families, our work colleagues, our friends, our neighbours, it means that we too need to go on caring about people, not just about things and programmes and places. That we need to go on asking the question, well, what are you calling me to do? in my Monday through Saturday everyday life and in the life of God's people, the church. And we need to be, go on being serious of asking the Holy Spirit to empower us for every day. My biggest challenge from this would simply be to say, however mundane your Monday may look, and I do know Mondays are quite capable of being the most mundane of days, dare you ask the Spirit of Jesus to empower you for Monday. It's an astonishing prayer to pray. Jesus, please fill me with your Holy Spirit. Empower me for whatever comes today. Changes the whole view of what that day looks like from suddenly the most mundane of things, waiting on tables, becomes a gift of the Spirit, empowered by God. And then you read the rest of chapter 6 and the rest of chapter 7 and chapter 8. And you find that this Stephen, empowered to wait on tables, chosen a man full of the spirit and of wisdom, ends up preaching this astonishing sermon out of nowhere, ends up transforming actually the life of the early church because in his martyrdom was that seed sown that transforms the life that was to come.